house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Circus disaster of all time. Are you telling me that you were there for right in the middle of it? I don't know if I picked that circus, but something told me that circus picked me. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that is wearing a fedora to the Danny Collins show at the Greek. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my prized attraction, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, I'm recording this upside down, on a trapeze, <laughs> um, kissing a tiger. What is it about circus movies that I feel like part part of the the process, a little peek behind the curtain for when we prepare for these episodes, is we prepare an outline and some of the things we sort of include are why did this movie had Oscar buzz and and why did it fail? And there was an era of circus movies. It it's not just that there was an era of circus movies, but like I feel like there is something kind of endemic to us as a people that we look at something like a circus movie and we're like, oh, this is greatness. Like there is greatness. There is potential for greatness in here because of the scope of this movie. And like I'm thinking about something like uh in like the trailer for Big Fish when you saw right. the circus scenes and there was just like this sense of wonder or like our ongoing obsession with Flora Plum. And, I mean, yes. And, like, we just have this, this in our minds, there's potential for this great sort of, like, wondrous thing that could take the Oscars by storm because it's a circus movie. And I think there is something, like, psychological within the human psyche that, and I double-used the terms, like, psychological and psyche and... and Forgive me, it's early. Um, there is something within us that sort of that capacity for wonder that is just like, oh, it's a circus movie. And I mean, we have uh, had, because this episode is airing the day after the um, Oscar ceremony, Joe, wasn't it so cool when that thing happened? Wasn't it awful when that other thing happened? I, I By that, I mean it. all of the categories not being broadcast live on television hopefully they'll change that since we're recording this several weeks in advance anyway um no that's definitely a thing i think it's partly because like when we associate like the type of iconography and like cultural reverence for the circus you're dealing with a certain type of americana and a certain age in america that like is also associated to a lot of like what we conceive as prestige storytelling right um 
and I think it kind of borrows from that. It's kind of adjacent. Um, but well, yeah, even, even like, down to like Nightmare Alley, which like sure is more carnies than Carnival, but like right. Um, but uh, I'm thinking of and now I want to look up and see what year it won uh, Best Picture. But like the greatest show on earth, do you know what I mean? Right. That was the uh, the Oscars for 1952, the Cecil B. DeMille movie, The Greatest Show on Earth, which is always on one of those lists of like worst Oscar winning movies, worst right. worst Best Picture winners. But like, Along with like uh, around the world in eighty days, right, right, uh, and uh, and crash, um, and so there is something to this idea that the pageantry of it all, right, the Cecil B. DeMille of it all, this sort of big spectacle that he was known for, that kind of wrapped Hollywood around its finger and got it ahead of. I'm looking at other movies that uh, were released that year. High Noon, uh, The Quiet Man, the John Ford movie, The Quiet Man that he won. He won Best Director that year for that. Um, the John Huston Moulin Rouge was that year. Um, what else? I'm looking through. Uh, oh, oh, a little movie called Singing in the Rain, which wasn't even nominated for Best Picture. Uh, yeah, so all of those uh, sort of fell at the feet of. The circus movie that year. And I feel like, down to the fact that, like, before we even knew what The Greatest Showman was, it was on sort of long lead predictions, even Mm -hmm. though it had a director that nobody had heard of before, and a concept that we were all just like, we raised a skeptical eyebrow, and yet we were just like, but if... If this gets pulled off in a spectacular way, it's, you know... In a way that people aren't like, so basically Barnum, which is already a musical. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Uh, Barnum is not referenced by name in Water for Elephants, although the Ringling Brothers are as a kind of uh, looming competition to the Christoph Waltz uh, character. What is the fictional name of the circus in this movie? The Barzini Brothers? Something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and he's, uh, Pattinson's character is told early on, don't mention Ringling Brothers because, uh, he hates them so much. This is somehow... Benzini Brothers. Benzini, thank you. Um, Barzini is, uh, the, the Famous Italian, uh, Christoph Waltz. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, I mean, he's lying about everything. I don't think his name is actually Benzini either. Um, but anyway, uh, where was I going with this? Christoph Waltz, right. So somehow we have managed to make it to our fourth Christoph Waltz movie. He is among the cast for this movie. He's our most discussed cast member, which is Shocking. wild to me because it still doesn't seem like he's made that many movies in America since Inglorious Bastards. And yet I look at his filmography and it's more than more than I remember. It's a lot of movies where he's essentially playing the same character. He's always playing the same. It's it's crazy to me. Um, it's it's a little wild that this is only our third Reese Witherspoon movie. Which, like, when you actually think about it, she hasn't actually made a ton of movies. Right. She's made fewer than you think, and he's made more than you think. But so, we previously discussed uh, Christoph Waltz in uh, Tulip Fever... Uh, in our Big Eyes episode and in our uh, Carnage episode. Boy. He's bad in all three of those. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's bad in Water for Elephants. I still... I still think he was good in Inglorious Bastards, but I do feel like a lot of that Oscar was this unknown guy who was making a splash, and we're just like, he has such odd energy in this movie 
what a great performance. And then you look at the next like 15, 20 years of his career, um, not 20, it hasn't been that long since Julian Glorious Bastards, but anyway, um, the next decade of his career, and you look and it's just like, oh, he's doing the Christoph Waltz thing. He's doing it well in Inglorious Bastards. And mm-hmm. I also don't think he's bad in Django. I certainly don't think I would have given him an Oscar for it, but like... No. Well, that's such a unique situation, because those are all previous winners. Django was the movie that was surging at the time of voting. It makes sense that he won, but in terms of like how much I liked the performance, I I liked it. I don't... I wouldn't have nominated it, and I certainly wouldn't have given him a second Oscar for it. Voted for him either, but... Well, and it's also like Christoph Waltz, even by that point, I feel like had been this established kind of typecast guy. It's almost like, no, you can't say that he's typecast. He just plays everything so similarly. That's the thing. It's He's cast like, in kind of a lot different, of different types honestly, of roles. Sorry, I ahead. think the performance that's different is Django. <laughs> like, that's the one where he gets yes, to, where he does play something a little different. I agree with that. And that's a lot, large part of the reason why I like it. But right, you look at, you know... Carnage, Water for Elephants, Tulip Fever, Big Eyes, all of these roles are, I mean, I guess they they sort of circle around this idea of um, the bad love interest, the bad husband, right? He's sort of the mm-hmm. same guy in Tulip Fever as he is in Water for Elephants, which is like the domineering cuckold, right? Um, but he's, Christoph he's in a movie surprisingly called... like nice in Tulip Fever, though, right? He's just like, he's awful, but he's not like abusive. Like sure. He is in but Water cast Christoph Waltz in a movie correctly. called The Domineering Cuckold and make it a musical. <laughs> and I will, uh, I will go and see it. Um, and then it's a Carnage, joke. Carnage, he's also a, a, a mean husband. And Big Eyes, he's... He's a charlatan like he is in Water for Elephants. So, like, all of the movies that we have actually covered, he is kind of playing similar roles. But you look at stuff like Downsizing, where he's also kind of a charlatan, but, like, in a different way. Um, Why don't I remember him in Downsizing? I I blocked out as much. He's, like, the second lead in Downsizing, once you realize that Kristen Wiig isn't going to be in that movie very much. Um, Yeah, he's... uh, I forget him. He's one of the people who Matt Damon sort of befriends at that uh, apartment complex that he goes to live at. In uh, that makes sense in the downsized world. Um, but I also watched French Dispatch again over uh, over the the last week, and he it's surprising. It's not surprising how little he's in it because like there are a lot of people who are in that for like half a second. But he literally his part in that movie is literally consists of like turning to camera and like that's <laughs> all the work he does. In the French Dispatch. Um, But you also look at his other sort of major contribution to American films in the last decade has been in the Bond movies. He's been in Spectre and and No Time to Die playing a... And now, I'm not a Bond scholar. So, like, my opinion on this should probably not hold a ton of weight. But I think he's terrible in those movies. Just in terms of, like, a watchability factor for me. I mean, he's in No Time to Die, which is I, it, I mean, he's I, in it I've, more than he's. It's not just as brief more as than I you think he'll thought. be. It's a long I, movie, and he's in it for a decent amount of it. I, I, I'm famously not. I, I'm cold on the Daniel Craig Bond, so I like No Time to Die quite a bit. But like, he's one of the worser elements of the two that he he's is. in. He is, uh, and he's so big a part of Spectre, and Spectre is. So 
so much the bad one as far I've never actually seen Quantum of Solace, so I can't say if it's the worst of the Craigs, but like I haven't seen it since the theaters, but it was it was the most like egregious writer strike movie to me, right. where it's like, well, this script was fucked when they started right. filming. Right. Um I'm looking at his uh, still looking at Christoph Waltz's filmography. I still have never seen Alita Battle Angel, so I don't know what kind I of a role he played you're in fine. that. Don't I, tell its online fans, but you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> I never saw the Slender Man movie, which is kind of surprising because I like sort of junky, uh, creepy he's horror in that? stuff like that. Yeah, apparently. Um, I don't know how much of it he's in, but like it's on his uh, his list. He's pretty far down. Oh yeah, he's like way way down. So I bet you he's in like a scene. In, in he plays the Slender Man <laughs> as like a shockingly <laughs> verbose and like clipped speech yeah are you disturbed that i'm so slender um yeah (laughs) Um, were you expecting me to be this slender (laughs) he's in uh the legend of tarzan a movie i didn't see the uh uh, alexander skarsgård one he's in horrible bosses 2 which i of course did not see Uh, of course he's in horrible bosses 2 what's that of course he's in Horrible Bosses, too. Yeah, right. And then he was in that Quibi show, uh, Most Dangerous Game, that uh, that nobody, certainly nobody saw in, uh, in what's, 15 what's your, increments or not. your title for him? What about the cuckold? Oh, um, I, I can't even remember the things that I say. The anymore. disturbing cuckold The domineering or cuckold, yeah. The yeah, domineering yeah. cuckold. Entirely yeah. shocking that that is not the title of his Quibi show. Yes, it's true. It's true. Is that the one that Amanda Seyfried was in, The Most Dangerous Game, or am I misremembering? Um, no, Sarah Gadden. Liam, Liam Hemsworth, Christoph Waltz, Sarah Gadden. The Most Dangerous Game. All right. Sure. Um, yeah. Anyway, so our fourth Christoph Waltz movie, our first Robert Pattinson movie, which will be fun to sort of delve into. This came at we'll a really interesting stage of his career. Only his second uh, non, like, uh, ma- of at least, like, major releases. Like, his first, like, right. headlining role outside of Twilight, except for what? You guessed it. Secret 9-11 movie. Remember me. Remember me. Exactly. Exactly. We'll definitely delve into the Pattinson of it all. He's He's sort of central to... I mean, obviously, he's the main character of this movie, but like, he's sort of at the root of sort of my opinion of this movie. And then, of course, we have Reese Witherspoon, only our third Reese movie, which is quite surprising uh, after dun 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 rendition and Vanity Fair, which our boy Arpats is maybe in, depending on which, <laughs> whether you've seen the director's cut of Vanity Fair or not. He was apparently cut out of the original version, playing who, Chris? Her son. Her son. And now he's her love interest in this movie. So, listen, sometimes, sometimes that's one of those things that feels like is a one of those, like, facts that become a meme that is less true once you actually sort of think down about it. Like, obviously, Vanity Fair covers a long period of time and whatever. Yeah, and her character ages. Her character ages. This is the sort of thing when everybody was like, Tom Hanks and Sally Field were love interests in Punchline, and then she played his mom in Forrest Gump. And I'm like, well, she mostly played the mom of the younger version of Tom Hanks. And by the time they were both on screen together, she was, like, aged up well beyond her years because her character aged. Like, there's, there's a little bit of, like dishonesty to that right you know very memeable complaint about that but anyway. and they're not really love interests in punchline and she's 
like plot wise older than him in Punchline. I think I think we're all I think we all managed to survive the great Tom Hanks Sally Field age debacle quite well. I think we're all I think we all managed to make it onto the other side pretty well. But anyway, in the like top 100 things about Forrest Gump that you could complain about, like it doesn't rank. I'm sorry. There are so many other things to talk about when you talk about Forrest Gump, a movie that I for many years liked and thought about fondly. And then I watched it again in the last maybe five years or so. And I'm like, Oh, this movie is maybe like a a force for bad. (laughs) Yeah. Morally reprehensible. If you watch it with anything, if you watch it with a single wrinkle in your brain, you are just screwed. It is smooth brain entertainment. Like you cannot, you cannot process anything other than like the emotional function of the movie because otherwise it's, um, it's maybe, maybe morally corrupt. Right. Exactly. Um, anyway, so we'll definitely get into, uh, Pattinson and, and Reese and, and that whole thing. I also will be, will be very interested to talk about director Francis Lawrence, who I have always sort of thought of as a very underrated director. And now I'm looking at his filmography and I'm just like, do I think Francis Lawrence is underrated or do I just really like Constantine? That's exactly what I was going to say, because it's like, no, Constantine is just rad, though. I mean, Constantine is an adaptation of a graphic novel, right? So it's uh, you even though he's the director of that movie, is he really the like driving authorial engine to it? Yes, although I think there are ways that a Constantine movie could have gone wrong. Like he like right. he there is a panache to that movie that carries it through. It's also incredibly well cast. I mean, uh, we can we can talk about uh, Constantine sort of on the other side of uh, the plot description. But my other thing about Francis Lawrence is I've always sort of held this idea that like Francis Lawrence directed the best Hunger Games movie, which to me is Catching Fire and it's not even close. Like it is by far the best Hunger Games movie. And then I'm like, "Oh, but he did also direct Mockingjay parts 1 and 2." So it's like he directed the best one and also one of the worst ones. So at least one of the worst well, ones. Well, he directed all of them, but one. But one of them. Right. Right, exactly. So it's like, what exactly am I saying when I say he directed the the best Hunger Games movie? It's like he directed most of the Hunger Games movies. Also, and then there's Red Sparrow, which is which I have heard is at least bug nuts, and it's crazy that I haven't seen it because any movie where I've been told that like you got to see Mary Louise Parker's performance in that movie, and it's wild that I haven't seen. Oh yes, but it is 140 minutes long, and every time I go to sit down to watch it, I'm like, it's 140 minutes long, and it's supposed to be bad, and like, how much of this could Mary Louise possibly be in? And yet, I do probably still need to see it. She is not in it that much. It probably takes at least an hour and a half until you see her. But uh, unfortunately, I do think you have to watch Red Sparrow for Mary Louise Parker. Maybe I'll just do it like I'll watch it while I'm like, you know, folding laundry and paying bills or whatever. And just sort of why when she shows up, I'll perk up or something like that. We'll see. We'll see what's going on. I do love Jennifer Lawrence. It's Charlotte Rampling's in it. How how much? I don't know. How bad can it be? I guess I'll find out. (laughs) It's not, I I mean, I don't remember it being, like, actively bad as just, like, never good or interesting. Right. Um, I mean, I guess we're sort of, you know, waist deep in the Francis Lawrence conversation by now. So, right, Constantine's his first movie in 2005. And then he is the one who ultimately takes I Am Legend over the finish line, even though that movie had been in the works for decades. Like, Mm -hmm. Like, that just, there was so long and there was different... 
actors who are going to be in it. For the longest time, it was supposed to be a Schwarzenegger movie, yada yada. It makes it to the screen before completely the... like overhauled with reshoots, right? Right. Yes. Um. And and de- and delays, and I feel like there was just like this cavalcade of stuff in in terms of the production history of that. And then by the time it makes it to theaters. I I don't often think about I Am Legend in a way that like what if what a picture you know what I mean but I liked it and it also made quite a bit of money is, is some people really hate it like and I've never seen it so I don't really understand right. why I understand that people think that the CGI is embarrassing but I don't know it just looks like a, a movie that's like totally fine I don't understand why it inspires so much like hate around right. It. Um, I think the most thing, the thing I mostly think about with that movie is just like, that was one of those movies where people were like, Will Smith, man, like he can, he can do anything because that movie just made, you know, so much money. And I believe it was like a late, late in the year release. It wasn't even like a summer release. Uh, It was holiday season. It was either Thanksgiving or Christmas. Right. Exactly. So, um, which is not exactly like a desert in terms of movies, but when you think about Will Smith, you think about, you know, Mr. Fourth of July and all this sort of stuff. And um, so that was his second movie. Water for Elephants ends up being his third movie a good four years after I Am Legend. So it's interesting. He's coming off of, Constantine, which is, like, a modest financial success, but, like, people really rode for that movie in a way that uh, that was good for Lawrence. And then I Am Legend is a, is a legit big success. And so it's interesting that it took four more years for him to direct another movie, and that movie ends up being so far out of the genre that he had been working in up until then. Which... Yeah. I mean, it's tough to know what the expectations were on Water for Elephants. It was a spring release, so it's not like... An incredibly popular book. An incredibly popular book, but I also feel like more and more, and maybe in 2011 this was maybe less apparent, but I feel like now more and more you look at like the people who are making books and uh, New York Times bestsellers are not the people seeing films in theaters anymore. Right. And I just feel like, so like the fact that this made almost $60 million domestic is actually pretty good, especially because the reviews weren't that great. And most of the reviews were being like, Reese and Pattinson don't have any chemistry. And that's a tough, that's a tough criticism to sort of get behind when you're trying to sell tickets based on the idea. When you're trying to sell tickets to a historical romance. Right, exactly. So... I guess kudos for this thing making as much money. And it made like double or not double that. It, it doubled its domestic take when it went got released internationally. It made just as much internationally as it did uh, domestically. So I don't know. I can't imagine the the promotional budget for Water for Elephants was so massive that it that this movie would have ended up taking a hit. But like I don't know studio math, so whatever. But <laughs> even though it made some money. It's basically, I also think the title of it makes it really ripe for um, derision. So you look at something like Water for Elephants, and because it's not a massive hit, and because the reviews were pretty middling, the the tiebreaker for Water for Elephants ends up being like, but it's much more fun to make fun of it, because it's called Water, water for Elephants. So <laughs> And from Canada, become... Water for Elephants. You know, the author of the book is Canadian. 
Really? So it's literally in From Canada Water for Elephants. Wow. All right. Now it's officially one of our movies now. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, even the log line of it is funny. Set in the 1930s, a former veterinary student takes a job in a traveling circus and falls in love with the ringmaster's wife. Just like it's kind of funny. It's just kind of, you know, a little bit of a silly concept that he's a veterinary student. I don't know why I find that like a little um, funny. There's one point where... Uh, well, he gets what uh, Waltz's character calls him Cornell throughout all of it because he went to Cornell and he almost graduated. And it's one of those things in the movie where I'm just like, it seems like a lot of effort to go run away with the circus and be an animal trainer with this like murderous guy head of the circus rather than like just try to find a way. Like, you're like two credits away from graduating Cornell. Like, is was go this- be a vet. Was this really the easier option? Was this really, you know, I know, you know, his parents got killed and, and it was well, traumatic. Well, the movie tries to kind of like wipe any uh, concern for that away by being like the depression, man. Right. Like it's a very hand wavy at the depression. Just sort of just like there was a depression happening, you know, connected. It was bad, you know, like, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. The one line that the guy says after his, so uh, whatever, you'll find this out in the plot description, but like Pattinson's parents die. And the guy who is essentially, like, laying out the financial situation for him, because his father owed a bunch of money to the bank and whatever, and he's, so the bank's going to have to repossess the home. And he says, and it's Bernard from Lost, first of all, which, like, give me a break, Bernard from Lost. Uh, He goes, maybe if you hadn't gone to college, you'd still have a home, which is so, it's not supposed to be a laugh line, but I did burst out laughing, because it was, like, so bluntly mean and just sort of, like, setting up. The first act of the you movie. You college boy. Uh, yes, you're right that it's from Bernard from Lost because I immediately was like, did you meet a woman named Rose? <laughs> In Sue sobbing. Uh, yeah, I don't need Bernard from Lost to be that mean. But anyway, all right. So let me pull out my phone and we can get to the point where you're going to do a plot description for Water for Elephants. Uh, the 2011 film that we are talking about today uh, Water for Elephants was directed by Francis Lawrence, as we have been mentioning. It was written by our old friend Richard Legravenez, and we're going to get into that because we'll, we'll uh, talk we talked about, about him quite recently on uh, on this old podcast. Uh, it starred... Wait, uh, Richard... Written, bleh, written by Richard Legravenez and based on the novel by Sarah Grun, I'm going to say, is how we pronounce her name. So apologies to Sarah if I uh, butchered that. It starred Robert Pattinson, Reese Witherspoon, Christoph Waltz, Hal Holbrook, Paul Schneider, Jim Norton, Mark Pavanelli, with Ty the Elephant as Rosie, and Uggie the Dog as Queenie. We'll definitely get into it. It <laughs> premiered on April 22nd, 2011. Chris, I've got my stopwatch ready. Are you ready to embark upon the adventure of a lifetime with the plot description for Water for Elephants? Let's hop a train and join the circus. All right, all right. Your time starts now. All right, so this is the story of Jacob Jankowski. We meet him in the beginning in the modern day where he meets uh, Paul Schneider, who's running a circus now, and he tells him his life story of when his parents died during the Great Depression, and uh, he was in veterinary school but dropped out and then eventually joins this circus where he wants to, like, give them their uh, uh, his veterinary skills. It's run by August, played by Christoph Waltz, who's, like, kind of this, like, schemey bad guy, and uh, he meets his wife, played by Reese Witherspoon. Her name's Marlena. She's kind of the star attraction. She does, like, shit with animals basically but her horse is sick and like he goes against august's rules and shoots the horse um 
like kind of proving his worth, but then they get a elephant named Rosie and they have to train him uh, because uh, uh, train Rosie, but then uh, the August beats Rosie and meanwhile uh, Jacob and Marlena are Ten falling seconds. in love and they love Rosie and uh, eventually they kind of run away together, get pulled back together. There's a giant animal breakout and uh, August dies and they live happily ever after. Bingo! Right on the button. All right, well done. Yes. Weirdly, like, kind of not a lot of plot. A lot of the plot of this is invested in, like, getting Jacob to be a central figure in this circus by becoming their vet slash animal trainer. Right. And, like, how that, you know, kind of creates this not really love triangle because... Obviously, August is an abusive husband. There's also, by the time you get to the end of the movie, there's this kind of um, uprising among the circus uh, employees, the roustabouts and whatnot, against August. But you don't really get a whole lot of that. I guess you see it sort of like simmering around the edges and just sort of like glances. And clearly, it's one of those things where throughout the movie... You're just like, it seems like people like Robert Pattinson's character more than they like Christoph Waltz, but maybe that's just because he's so handsome. So, um, Well, and you hear, like, whispers of things, like, when he buys Rosie and they don't have money because they don't have a star, like, animal. And, like, he has to save money, so there's, like, rumors that people are thrown from the train and that, like, he's essentially killing people or, you know, putting people in further danger. Yeah, his solution to all... uh, uh, financial crunches is always just like, well, I won't pay the roustabouts for a week. I won't pay the carnies for a week. And it's just like, oh, okay. So, yes, it makes sense that these people are all sort of fed up with him by the end. He also just seems like a real son of a bitch. Um, also, though, uh, there is a frame story to this, which is where Hell Holbrook comes in. And mm-hmm. I literally was like, oh, God, they're doing the Titanic framing. It's It's... Kind of, yeah. So similar to that with like with Paul Schneider as Bill Paxton, sort of. Where it's... this was such a huge book, and that was the. But I didn't read it. Did you read the book? Oh no, I don't read. Okay, I was also curious if this was during your library time, but I do think it was too late. No, it was. This was after. Um, um because I was like, did they add that for the movie? Maybe. Because it's just like, if you don't really have Hal Holbrook at the end rejoining the circus. Right. And saying, I'm not running away. I'm coming home. It's like, what is really the emotional climax of, I mean, like, obviously the animal breakout and August getting killed by Rosie, who bashes his brains in with a, like, crowbar? A a stake. A a tent stake. She pulled it up it we is had kind seen of silly. her doing it before early in the movie. She had pulled up the te- the stake that had chained her to to the ground, and so that was a little bit of a foreshadow. You could have just had him trample her, or he, her trample him. You could have, but then uh, then we wouldn't have seen the ingenuity of Rosie to uh, you know wield a weapon against against Kristoff. Uh, or maybe does she pick up the the. I don't think she does the whatever the club that because uh, August is uh, basically taking another crowbar to Marlena's neck and trying to like choke her. It's awful. right. Um, this is a secretly very violent movie. Yes, it is. Um, it is also a a secretly um, if if like abuse against animals is a trigger. It's not like we see a lot of yeah, it. But I am like, one of those people. Um, the scene where they're trying to train Rosie, the elephant, and 
Pattinson doesn't want to be harsh with her, and, and there's a club, there's a, a bull stick, they call it, or whatever, um, a bull club, and it's this sort of sharp-ended stick that you're supposed to, you know, hit the elephant with to make it do what you want to do, and it, like, draws blood, and it's, and it's you know, it's, you really, you really, really end up hating Waltz's character, if you it, hadn't it, already... The that, abuse that happens off screen, but you hear Rosie's screams throughout it. Yeah. And I'd seen this movie in the theaters and I just fully fast forwarded that scene. I couldn't do it again. I am one of those people who like, I, I just can't do like animal abuse yeah. on screen. Yeah. Um, well, while we're on the subject, why don't we talk about uh, Ty the elephant who played Rosie? Because this is a pretty... Famous Ty's famous. We've we we have talked about our good friend Bart the Bear before, and when we did our episode on an unfinished life ages ago, God, we were different people then. Um, who was sort of one uh, Bart the Bear two? Sorry, I should I should uh, be specific. And uh, and the legacy of the Bart the Bear cinematic universe. And there, Ty the Elephant is basically like if you've seen a movie where an elephant is a central part of the storyline. It was probably Ty. Ty was the elephant in... Okay, well, let's go through it. Uh, starting with an uncredited cameo in Big Top Pee-wee, which, like, icon. Like, way to, way to make your debut um, that way. But also, a major role in Operation Dumbo Drop. Probably the titular... I know Dumbo was, uh, you know, refer, re- referring to the Disney movie, but, like, whatever. Was the titular elephant being dropped, I imagine, in Operation Dumbo Drop? Um, and then was the main elephant in the Bill Murray comedy Larger Than Life from 1996, which mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I saw, and I would still only, it only exists as, like, a, a video box, essentially, where it's just like, oh, it's Bill, the, it's the one with Bill Murray and the elephant. Um, was in George of the Jungle in 1997, where, according to Wikipedia, she can be seen being ridden by Brendan Fraser and Leslie Mann, which... Nice work if you can get it, where you can be seen being ridden by Brendan Fraser in 1997, is all I will say. Yes. Um, uh, Looney Tunes back in action. Interesting, uh, again, with uh, Brendan Fraser. And then, so Water for Elephants comes along in nineteen or in uh, 2011. Um, Before we get to that, though, we should say that Ty is apparently in Vanity Fair. Yes. We have done almost as many Ty movies as we have... Reese Witherspoon movies. And exactly and the same number of movies as we've done Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson and Ty are, are, are in the same, are riding the same trajectory for us at this moment. So we'll I was see. trying to find, I remember an interview with some actress, and maybe it was Reese, that a famous, like, elephant that, you know, animal performer that's been in movies, like, the whole elephants never forget thing, like apparently, is true. Oh wow! I remember. I can't remember who it was. I feel like it might have been Julia Roberts for Eat, Pray, Love, but that you know when they're going to you know meet the animal performer that's going to be in the film, and like the actress was like, that animal remembered me. Well, what but was maybe the, it's Reese. What was the actors' roundtable clip that was going around this year about? They were talking about. They had all worked with the same horse. Shit. Oh, wow. Do you remember this? <laughs> no, but... It was the actors' It was the actors roundtable from this year, the Hollywood Reporter actors' roundtable from this year, where it was Nicolas Cage and Andrew Garfield 
and Jonathan Majors, and I can't remember who else was in the, but like these are the major players we need to talk about. So um, I want to say maybe Jesse Plemons or Benedict Cumberbatch was one of them as well. Um, probably Cumberbatch. Anyway, Cage is telling a story about this horse who, on a set for some movie, one of Cage's eight bajillion movies that he made, um, the horse was named Rain Man, and the horse hated him, and the horse uh, tried to like headbutt him and throw him off and whatever, and Girl, Garfield's like with dying laughing at this whole story. And then Jonathan Majors is like, yeah, I worked with that horse on Harder They Fall. Like, I worked with that horse this year, and so... Yeah. Well, at least you had a nice horse. My horse on uh, Butcher's Crossing named Rain Man wanted to kill me. <laughs> Rain Man? Where'd you, shoot, where'd you shoot that? Uh, Montana. I okay. was in uh, in uh, Blackfoot country on the reservation. Rain Man kept trying to knock me off the horse. He would try to run me my head into like roofs, and then he would try to throw me. And then I'd get off the horse and try to be nice. And he would headbutt me. It was not fun. And I've always had good experiences with animals. Always had great experiences with horses. But Rain Man wanted to kill me. Rain Man is in Montana with I think a man named Scotty. <laughs> Do you know Rain Man? I know Rain Man. Whoa. I've ridden Rain Man. Have you ridden Rain Man? Yeah, because Scotty is Did you the Rain Man. Was you on Blackfoot Reservation with Rain Man? No, uh, yeah, no, he came down to Santa Fe. You've been on Rain Man? I've ridden Rain Man. I've ridden Zinko. So was he nice to you? Was Rain Man nice I to you? I think he made me a lot older when I got him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Older doesn't mean we get nicer. No, that was I just rapped like three weeks ago. Then that's right, man. man. Yeah, then yeah, he's fine. Well, he's fine with you. He likes in you. Montana. He doesn't like and that's- they were literally just talking about like just differing experiences and like majors. I think had a better experience with the horse, and it was the whole kind of really uh, delightful conversation about this that uh, very rarely does the actors roundtable come through uh, in a memorable way. We were always talking about the actresses, but this was. A really good lineup too. Like I, I remember when I saw that lineup, I was like, "Oh, I kind of like all of these people." This is a really yeah. good. I think yeah. Dinklage was on this one as well. So it was that half day where we felt like Nicolas Cage and Pig could happen. Oh God, if only, if only. I really wanted that to happen. What a great performance. Anyway, so yeah, so uh, yeah, stories about uh, uh, animals on sets, and also it's interesting that like, nope. Uh, is about a a Hollywood horse ranch, right? Like they are not about that. Tell, like yeah. that's sort of the premise for that. But uh, cannot fucking wait for that. Oh movie. my god! I finally saw. I finally probably saw probably my most anticipated of the year. Finally saw that trailer on the big screen, um, and it is a it is a fun experience. I will say for as much as you know, watching it on the laptop or whatever, you're excited. But there really is no comparison to seeing a trailer for a movie you're super excited about on the big screen for the first time. And you're just like, yes, fuck, I'm so excited. Um, anyway, we back should to- mention, um, Ty, there there was like, yes. as it often is with movies that have animals so centrally and especially more exotic animals, there was some like controversy question of if there was animal abuse occurring on set and nothing ever actually came out but Ty was apparently there was some footage of Ty being abused prior to uh, the work on this movie which is horrible and unfortunate and it was one of those things where the controversy got tagged to the movie because the controversy was coming out when the movie was coming out. And like, it was basically like, were animals abused on the set of water for elephants and water for elephants was like, definitely not here. are All the procedures we followed, we went to the letter, yada, yada, yada. And then it was found out that years earlier, the company that, uh, 
that sort of provides these animals, which is called Have Trunk Will Travel, was under fire. And there was video, uh, allegedly video, that showed uh, possible animal abuse under their care from, like, 2005, right? Which was, like, well before Water for Elephants. So you, you do feel bad that, like, seemingly the Water for Elephants production did everything right, and yet because the company that they used to provide this elephant was then uncovered for previous abuse. Now forevermore, sort of Water for Elephants is the movie that has an animal abuse controversy tacked to it, even Mm -hmm. though there was no indication that there was animal abuse on the set of that movie. So like, that's kind of a shame for that movie, right? Yeah. So... But anyway, yes, this was one of the things, I think, when in the general conversation about this movie, where, like, the uh, the buzz around this movie was just sort of generally bad for a lot right. of different reasons. And this was a, a contributing factor to that. But anyway, we stand a legend. We stand Ty. Passed she away. Passed away last year. Yeah, just very recently, last year. So um, I'm not sure exactly how long elephants usually live but like uh lived about 55 years so uh that's pretty good also though not even the biggest animal star of the year in this movie actually because that glory hogging bitch uggy at the bottom of this cast list stealing all the laurels because uh, this was of course the same year as the artist yes what do we think about Uggy and the artist? I'm going to go on my own little spiel, but I want to give you a, a chance to... I, I know, know what your spiel is going to be. We've definitely had this conversation before, and I love it. Uggy, innocent. Uggy is like... <laughs> Uggy... I mean, it's not Uggy's fault that Uggy was turned into an overnight sensation and trotted out annoyingly. Uggy, wonderful, wonderful young man. Uh, I say young because he is a terrier... God loves a terrier. That is true. God does love a terrier, uh, uh, canonically so. But like, okay, so again, let's let's you know take this seriously. The the career of Uggy the dog. Uggy also uh, sadly passed away in 2015. Um, not in as many movies as as Ty. Uh, had only previous to uh, 2011 had only been. Uh, in that movie, What's Up Rockers, the Larry Clark movie that nobody ever saw, because by that point we had all decided to well and truly disavow Larry Clark. Um, I would have loved to have heard Uggy's horror stories about Larry Clark. I'm sure right? there were many. Uggy saw some shit as biting dog in What's Up Rockers. God, could you imagine if like Twitter existed in the age of Larry Clark? I cannot, like... and I don't want to think about it. I absolutely don't. In the era of... um gen z specifically sort of like they would have like tore that motherfucker apart um for good reason sure and yet also like i'm glad kids exists because like kids was a major sort of milestone movie in a lot of ways a a flashpoint talking point yes 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 yes. um he was also in a 2006 movie called mr fix it that starred david boreanaz which looks terrible um but anyway big breakout year for uggy was 2011 was in Water for Elephants in the Spring, but then the big news was, well, I guess the spring also was the Cannes premiere of The Artist, and that's where it sort of all happened for uh, Uggy. Uggy is essentially the third lead in The Artist after uh, Jean Dujardin and uh, Berenice Bejo, and Uggy was a instant sensation 
took the uh, the what is it at at, at Canada? The Palm Quasette. Dog. The, no, but what is the what is the the thoroughfare? Is it the Quasset there? Is there what's yes? The, the um, star of the Quasset. Took, fashion icon with his bow tie. Took the entire festival by storm. Did win, as you mentioned, the Palm Dog Award, which is an award that predated uh, Uggy. But I, I would have believed that they would have, like, if you had told me they created the Palm Dog to honor Uggy, um, <laughs> I would believe it. But actually, the Palm Dog goes back as far as 2001. And now I feel like we need to like delve into the history of the Palm Dog a little bit because uh, we truly will never get another chance to talk about Uggy again. So the very other great f- noted winners uh, include Brandy from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's true. Most uh, mo- uh, most recently, that um, also. Uh, what are other recent Palm Dogs? There was the dog in. Sorry, uh, once again, Wikipedia, you're just like, you're fucking this up for me. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Invisible Dog Moses from Dogville. The very first, right, <laughs> yes. The very first Palm Dog went to Otis from the Anniversary Party. Um, Doesn't that dog get lost or hit by a car? I need to see something? that movie again. I really or like do. they accidentally feed ecstasy to the dog or something. Something bad happens with that dog. Um, animated dogs also tend to win the triplets of Belleville, uh, one, f- the palm dog for Bruno, um, Marie Antoinette. There was a dog named Mops that won the palm dog in 2006. Uh, obviously a unanimous palm dog winner in 2008 went to Lucy, the titular, uh, of w- dog of Wendy and Lucy, which like a more, a more appropriate winner could not possibly uh, be imagined. Uh, once again, animated dogs do tend to clean up in this category, actually, which I'm not sure if I was a, was a real flesh and blood dog, I would be kind of pissed about animated dogs coming and taking my awards. Uh, Doug, you would be Meryl Streep complaining about stop motion performance. Kind of. Well, but it's even more so because like in Up, like Doug the dog in Up is not based on a real dog's like mocap stuff. Like that's just... Uh, it's the voice of the director, isn't it? Who is the voice of Doug and Up? Hold on. That makes sense. We're really like going down some it's rabbit Pete, holes. It's not Pete Doctor. That's a Pete Doctor movie. No, right? it's no. It is a Pete Doctor movie, but it's actually uh, Bob Peterson is the voice of Doug. Sure. Anyway, um, justice for anybody else in 2009 that uh, Doug was taking uh, dog awards. So yeah, uh, obviously the entire cast of uh, White God, that movie about the dogs, uh, won the Palm Dog in 2014, and pr- pretty much rightly so. Oh, the dog from Patterson! I kind of loved the dog from Patterson, actually, which won a posthumous Palm Dog in uh, 2016. I've never seen Patterson. Oh, Patterson's good. Um, uh, the Meyerowitz stories dog, Einstein, won the Palm Dog in 2017. So, uh, and yeah, Brandy from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the most recent uh, sort of uh, acclaimed winner of the Palm Dog. So Uggy wins the Palm Dog in 2011. And is, and I think partially it's because the artist features actors who were sort of not familiar to American audiences then. So, like, certainly Jean Dujardin became a thing. He ended up winning Best Actor at the Oscars. But, like, Uggy becomes the mascot of that movie in many ways. They, they, the promotional push for the artist kind of wisely pushes Uggy to the forefront because people love dogs. People love cute little, you know, God loves a terrier, and so do the American movie going public. And there was 
in my mind, to me, and I will say that, like, you very well may feel differently. To me, there was a tongue-in-cheek push for Uggy to get consideration for Best Supporting Actor that, to me, went a little bit into the realm of, no, this should actually happen. And that's where <laughs> my... And I am, again, I've never had a pet. So, like, I, I come to this from a very different perspective from most people. I do not have whatever that microchip in me that like whatever i like dogs fine but like (laughs) once that happened i was like well now you've just gone too far now all of a sudden you are this was a cute joke that now has to stop and it didn't stop it like people kept talking about it up until those goddamn that's kind of how i felt about the movie itself (laughs) all right so where did you come down on the uggy for best supporting actor discussion i I I remember that less probably because I was just like whatever with most of the stuff about that movie that wasn't you know Jean Dujardin because I was just like that movie is fine it is fine um I thought it was fine too I was I was sort of appreciative that a movie that was that kind of different was taking the award season by storm I was like rather this than like something that feels a little safer or, you know, in that year, it was definitely rather that than the descendants, which I hated. Right. 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 And like felt for a time, like the active, you know, second place. Right. Yes. Although I, I wonder what ended up, I, what do you think ended up as second place in 2011? Truthfully. I mean, I think the artist was pretty firmly out in front. Second place was, I mean, that's also Hugo, or is Hugo the next year? No, that's Hugo. Yeah, I mean, it was probably Hugo. Yeah, I think you're right. Although, I mean, it's tough to say, because you're right, The Descendants was in the mix for a while. I genuinely have no idea how well The Help did in Best Picture. It could have been second, it could have been eighth. Dead last. You know what I mean? Like, I genuinely have no idea. I don't. Um... But anyway, interesting year, 2011. I mean, like, I almost wonder if the artist didn't exist, if Hugo would have done better. I'm colder on Hugo, too. Like, the thing I love about Hugo is Ben Kingsley, but, like, everything else. And, like, I love Scorsese, but eh, that movie, I don't know. Yeah. So, um, all right, give me a second now, because I'm looking at Uggie's IMDb, and... It doesn't really list much beyond um, the artist. And yet... Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. I was reading this wrong. It says here that Uggy appeared opposite another Jack Russell Terrier named Cosmo, who was in Beginners, in a photo shoot spread for The Hollywood Reporter. So there was actually... Uh, a little bit of a maybe a rivalry between Dog Roundtable, Dog right, the Hollywood Reporter Dog Roundtable of 2011 was really something to see. Uh, Cosmo, obviously, in uh, Beginners, like that's it's it's uh, it's rare that I mean I guess the like the terriers are the most photogenic of the dogs, so like it doesn't surprise me that the terriers are the ones who are sort of the glory hogs of the uh, of the awards campaigns here. But uh, Uggy definitely had probably better press than Cosmo did that year. Justice for Cosmo is Justice what we're for saying. Cosmo. 
I don't love beginners. But it is like, no shade to Uggy to say justice for Cosmo. No, there could be room for multiple terriers in the cinematic universe. All right. Anyway, play, uh, Uggy plays Queenie in this. Queenie is a fairly minor role, but kind of uh, central to this friendship between Jacob and Walter, who is one of the uh, performers in the traveling circus. And one of the people who, when the movie needs to like ratchet up the stakes and the tension, unfortunately, like off screen gets kind of dealt with along with, uh, uh, what is his name? Kamel? Uh, uh, Jim Norton's character? Camel? Yes. Whatever. Um, these two are like his best friends. And after like shit goes down and Christoph Waltz finds out that Jacob and Marlena have been, you know, smooching and whatnot, uh, those two get thrown off of the train off screen. And it's very traumatic when Jacob finds out about it. I don't know. By that point, I'm pretty well disengaged with the movie. Not necessarily disengaged, but like, I'm not really as wrapped up in the tension of the movie as I need to be. I don't yeah. know if, if, if you feel the same. It doesn't really get the, like, I guess, criminality of August all that interesting. Like, we know that he's, like, threatening and a bad guy because mm-hmm. Christoph Waltz is playing him. But, right. like, I don't know. It It's... It, it kind of feels like stuck in first, not to use a... a car metaphor right um and this but like the romantic tension never really gets into gear meanwhile like the ecosystem around them which like it really relies on the tension because like we mentioned earlier the uprising and like unleashing of all these animals happens from within you know it's right it's August's crew basically rising up against him. Right. But that ne- that feels present, but not ever like it's generating any tension throughout. So my, my I mean, f- you're right. Like this movie is kind of a little bit of a flat line, though it's yeah. pretty to look at. Very pretty to look at. Well, the the uh, bona fides on the the craft team on this movie are like kind of impeccable. Like Rodrigo Prieto cinematography, Jack Fisk production design, Jacqueline West costumes, James Newton Howard did the score. Like that's the A team. Like that's the all-star team that you get for a movie that you want to position well as like an adult drama that like is elevated to the absolute like apex of visual filmmaking, which is kind of surprising to me that it ends up getting released in April, and then maybe I'm thinking, well, then did they just dump it once they saw the movie and saw that it didn't really add up to anything? If it was really great, wouldn't they not have waited until the fall to release it? Right. Well, I mean, I don't necessarily want to pin it all to Francis Lawrence. Like, you were like, it's kind of odd that he did this movie after doing Constantine and I Am Legend. I wonder if that's partly because of, like, Clearly, this was a difficult movie to make with, like, a high order of, like, challenges, especially with the amount of animals that are in it. And, like, sometimes you can tell that the animals are, like, were green screened in and it looks like CGI. But, like, definitely other parts of it. A lot of the stuff with Rosie was not. And, um, 
I, I don't know. There's just, there's a real lack of tension throughout. And you can kind of see the version of this that's like, you know, uh, y- you hate to like fetishize 1970s cinema, but like, you know, the version of this movie that was like made in the 70s yes. by like a yes. Sidney Pollock that's yes. like closer to a they shoot horses, don't they? Right. That like really is able to contextualize what is going on during the Great Depression and the type of businessman that August is throughout. And you can still have this romance at the same time between these two characters. My favorite sort of uh, film or TV depiction of a circus in this way was actually HBO's Carnival, which obviously has a whole lot of like supernatural and, and sort of like quasi religious implications to it that like, you don't necessarily I don't necessarily feel like I need Water for Elephants to be all that Carnival was, but one of the things that Carnival did very well and a TV show is more easily able to do this is it created this ecosystem of the circus, right? This mm-hmm. you know, it was a it was more of an ensemble piece and you got a sense of the kind of wide canvas of everybody working in this circus and where they all fit and they were able to better incorporate themes like you mentioned like the depression and whatnot and um it just felt a lot more satisfying here's an interesting tidbit though chris that i just sort of realized as i'm looking at the 20th century fox films of 2011 because i was Mm -hmm. like okay what did they move what did they keep water for elephants out of the fall to make room for and their big awards hopeful that year that we should actually probably do on this podcast pretty soon is we bought a zoo and i wonder if there was a calculation (laughs) made that like we can't have two sort of menagerie movies at the end of the year we need to pick one of them they chose we bought a zoo opens it at uh, right around christmas in 2011 and puts water for elephants in the spring and sort of essentially just sort of you know, sacrifices that one, essentially. Even with Robert Pattinson, like, I kind of understand that choice because, like, I'm sure we've talked about this in our other two Reese episodes, but, like, this is kind of at a down point for Reese Witherspoon. Very much so. Because um, it's, like, the the real, like, you know, bottom of the valley is the next year when This Means War comes out. Yes. But also what's interesting is the kind of rebound i think that happens with reese is basically even before her book club it's all like literary adaptations so this is like the beginning of the reese witherspoon based on a recent novel uh type of adaptation well i wanted to sort of delve into this because i have a couple of thoughts on this so she wins the oscar uh in early 2006 for uh, for Walk the Line. Um, her only 2006 movie, she's in a supporting role in that movie Penelope that she produced. I think that was, if not the first movie she ever produced, like one of the early like Reese's yeah. producing movies thing. That was the one where Christina Ricci has the pig nose. Um, it's kind of cute. I did not like Penelope. I feel like reviews Same. were worse than, than it ended up being. But then she goes on to a kind of a string of sort of high-profile failures where, like, rendition is positioned to be... Bump, 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 rendition. Um, we've talked about this on this podcast before. Uh, was positioned to be an Oscar player, was very much not, 
and reviews were bad. Then in 2008, she does Four Christmases with Vince Vaughn, and the reviews are, I believe, really bad. I want to check and see exactly how bad they were. But um, uh, da, 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 da. <laughs> the Hollywood Reporter called the film one of the most joyless Christmas movies ever. So yeah, the reviews were not good. Um, <laughs> 25% on Rotten Tomatoes. So yeah, as I remembered, uh, that, that uh, reception was pretty bad. Um, and then How Do You Know in 2010? I'm sort of glossing over Monsters vs. Aliens, where she does uh, provide a voice. And that movie, I believe, made a decent amount of money. But like nobody ever thinks of you know, that Reese Witherspoon movie, Monsters vs. Aliens. So I think we can sort of gloss over it. But she does the James L. Brooks failure, How Do You Know, that we really do have to do. I would love to do that movie. We really do have to do it. I kind of wanted to sit on it for a while, because when we were starting this podcast, like, I think Blank Check had, like, just done it, or we're, like, just doing it, and I wanted to kind of... At this point, that was years ago. It It still feels like the point of the pandemic when it's, like... right. 2020 was yesterday. Right, exactly. Um, And then those are the movies that she does leading up to Water for Elephants. So Water for Elephants kind of adds to that kind of bad buzz. And then, you're right, This Means War at the very beginning of 2012 is the nadir. That's sort of the, the bottoming out. The other thing that I wanted to mention, though, that is around the same time as things started moving up for her. And I was... I actually looked this up because I thought it might have been the same year as Water for Elephants 2011, but it's not. It's 2013, which is the uh, getting pulled over by the cop for whatever it was. Like, uh, she's, I can't remember exactly what they had pulled her over for, but she's drunk and giving the uh, do you know who I am thing to the cop. And I thought this was America. The whole thing gets caught on tape. It is. On its face, you would have been like, oh, what a disaster. This is going to kill her career. She's going to be absolutely ruined by this. But the fascinating thing was, because the sort of public perception of Reese up to that point was this incredibly high achiever, a lot of like the Tracy Flick stuff, I think, got like glossed onto her, where she's like, she's producing things. She's a high achiever. She uh, she broke up with Ryan Phillippe and a lot of the... Um, the scuttlebutt around that was that he did not, he had trouble dealing with a wife who was more powerful than him, like professionally. Mm-hmm. How much of that is true or not, who knows. But a lot of the public perception of her was this just like totally in control, totally type A. And then this audio comes out of this, you know, her yelling at the cop. And it really kind of started to make her seem like messier and thus more relatable. And Mm -hmm. it really starts to turn her public perception into something different. There was also around that time, or not too long after, there was the video of her at some sort of wedding, like really... Dancing. Yes. Yes. Spectacular. And so all of this stuff came around, and like not too long after that, there was the Met Ball, or the Met Gala... uh, video in the elevator with her and Cara Delevingne and Zoe Deschanel and whatever. I love you, Cara. Cara. I love you. <laughs> and if you force me to say your last name, I'll be Don't try. I love it. I love it when you do it. Say it. Delevingne. Cara. Cara. Hey, we don't know. Where are we? Important thing about an Indiana name for a girl. Yes. 
is that a man can whisper it in his pillow. Uh, like that whole thing is just like it really does turn around her her public perception and all of a sudden then people really start to like her i think a lot more than they did and so then when like wild happens and and you know she's an inherent vice and and i think sort of things start moving up from then i don't know am i off base am i crazy no no you're totally right i mean like it is a it's somewhat of a public perception thing it's also just the type of roles that she did and i mean she's producing a lot of the roles that she takes on right um especially these days but like that really starts with wild um and like a lot of it comes from like popular literature. I feel like we need a little bit more of that looseness back. Yes. It's gotten She's very social media. It's gotten NFT. That's exactly it's... right. Yep. But like Big Little Lies felt like we were gonna keep it for a while because like you and I we're both Madeline McKenzie fans. Oh, we she's the best part that of that perform- show. I love Nicole She is the Kidman best performance too. in that show. I love Nicole. I love Laura Dern. But, like, Absolutely. by a mile, Reese is the best thing about Big Little Lies. She's so good. I agree. One of her best performances. And it's wild that, like, it got, no pun intended, um, that it got so incredibly overshadowed by her co-stars. And she seemed fine with it. Like, she did, she never felt, like, I'm sure there was probably a part of her, but she really is in her, like, I'm going to be in things with a bunch of women and they're all going to overshadow me in terms of reception era. Because also the morning show where like Jennifer Aniston is winning SAG awards and everybody's talking about Juliana Margulies and nobody is talking about Reese as kind of at all. I feel like the first time I heard about her character was when she became a surprise lesbian with Juliana Margulies. And then Little Fires Everywhere is the other one where like Kerry Washington's the one who gets the Emmy nomination out of that. And, and... I never finish Little Fires Everywhere, though I really, really liked the book. I think you're fine never finishing the TV show. The TV show felt like a mess. I found it to be a watchable mess, and I I did not regret my time watching that show. But I can't, you know, I'm not going to say it was like the best, you know, the best thing on television or anything like that. So she's in, you're right, she's in a, a very kind of a little precarious, she's sort of pushing it to a point of, back to unlikability again with the NFT stuff and the, the I don't know, the... Over-curation. Over-curation. There's, there's more cringe, I think, than there used to be with her. Although cringe has always been a little bit part of the package, even when, you know, at her best. But I still love her. I still want the best for yeah. her. And... Adore her. Yeah. Uh, back to Water for Elephants, though. Nobody's really good in this movie, but, like, she's... Like, she's no exception. I mean, she's no exception because I think all three of these leads are pretty miscast. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. Even, like, the way that she's styled in this movie to be, like, this very Prohibition era, like, styling of, of like, ultra platinum blonde. Like, it's just, it's, I don't understand why they considered her for this part. Because, like, it's not even. First of all, there's nothing really for her to do, right? Except ride an elephant, right? But it's, I don't. I think that people were. I mean, people were overly mean about it. But I think people were right that she doesn't really have no. chemistry with Pattinson. She doesn't. Pattinson, who like I would love to talk about, I think is a little more at sea than she is. Yes. 
because his character also isn't very interesting. If her character had a little bit more to go on, she might have been a little bit better equipped to anchor that a little better, even though you are right that I think she's pretty miscast. Um, But yeah, she's just sort of, she's the one who from the very first time she steps on screen, you can basically write out the entirety of her arc. And Mm -hmm. that's not good. And it's pretty cliched and it's pretty, for as much as the movie wants you to sort of hang on, especially when they go back to Hal Holbrook in the flash, in the sort of a rap story, essentially talking about how they were together for all those years and they were the best time of his life. And, and he made, he, you know, kept all the promises he made to her and all this stuff. And it's just like, I not as invested as I need to be in this, to be moved by all of this Mm -hmm. stuff at this point, seeing them on their like little, you know, farm or or homestead or wherever else, wherever they end up, uh, you know, making their life training animals or whatever. I, I guess I'm supposed to feel a note of relief and triumph for them at that point. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm, my heart's not in it. Yeah. Which is I mean, it feel it feels more mechanical. Like this is where the story is supposed to go than something that's like earned and has like our investment in it. And at the same time, I don't necessarily think it's the actor's fault. Like, no, but they're 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 not they're not rescuing it. I don't. I don't know. I think we'll get into Pattinson in half a second because I do want to do it, but I do think he's a weakness. And I think at this point. Waltz is always going to be a detriment to a movie. I'm always going to wish I was watching somebody else in that role because he just brings the same notes to everything and I'm done with it. At this He's point. just a bad guy in this and there should be something more intimidating. Like, I don't know if it's more of like a physically intimidating presence right. or if he needs to be more of like a brute than a squirrely like businessman, right. you know, but right. I think that's, I think that part is definitely right. I think you need to have somebody with a completely different physical Im- imposition to him before we get off of the Reese conversation though. The one thing I want to ask you about is She's at this point, I think they are filming or have filmed Legally Blonde 3. I don't think they filmed it yet. This is like, I mean, I guess if the Enchanted sequel can finally get made, eventually we'll get Legally Blonde 3. I think Legally Blonde 3 could actually be a lot of fun. But in the age of like streaming, where they're just like making whatever for a streamer right. because like they're trying to lure subscribers. I don't understand how that hasn't happened yet. And it's probably because they just don't have a good script yet. Well, and also, so it's, um, the original films were MGM. So where would that, where would it exist now in the, uh, it it would go to United Artists now, which is what streaming platform though, is what I'm, is what I'm getting at. I don't, well, yeah, you're right. I don't think they are associated to one. Because it does. I think they're getting wrapped up with Amazon, but like they're still doing their own distribution and not even like what Searchlight is doing now, which is basically like latching itself to Hulu. I could definitely see this being one of the, like Amazon's definitely gotten into the Lego sequel game. They did, they did Bill and Ted, right? Um, No. No. Bill and Ted was theatrical. Yes. They definitely did Coming to America. Uh, yes, they did. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I I question whether Legally Blonde 3 is what she needs at this point in her career. But, like, 
Whatever. We don't need any more nostalgia, but I think it could be a good time. All right, so let's jump over to Pattinson, who, at this point in his career, this is the same year as Breaking Dawn Part 1, which actually, it's so funny, we did the uh, that box office game, the Wordle version of box office game that I've now <laughs> become obsessed with, um, did this weekend, this day, as we are recording this, and I was like, oh, I got exactly, I didn't have to burn a guess on the wrong Twilight movie, because the thing they give you is, like, they give you the the weekend box office take and also what studio. So as soon as you see Summit at the top of the box office, you're like, well, it's a Twilight movie, but it's which one? And because we were researching for Water for Elephants today... I was like, oh, I know which Twilight movie it was because I just saw this. I just made this, made a note of this. And so, yeah, Water for Elephants comes out in the spring. And then in the fall, it's uh, Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 1. So he's almost out of the Twilight era of his career. So he's just now starting to move into the realm of, you know, I don't want to say like grown-up movies because like, you know, I don't want to slight the Twilight Saga too much. I feel like it's gotten a lot of shit. I don't think it's as good it's as it's... It's gotten a reclamation, though. It has, and I don't think it's as good as the reclamation wants you to believe it is, but, like... I it, agree. It has its moments. Certain movies in that saga have its moments, and I think Pattinson and Stewart, in particular, deserve a lot of credit, and they sort of went through a real roller coaster uh, in terms of reception. The good... Part of that is they will have insane dedicated fans for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and every project project that they embark upon will have some degree of fervent interest. And you will always end up getting things like, I mean, we'll talk about the, the awards that Water for Elephants ended up being in contention for, almost certainly entirely because of the Twihards. And um, Kristen Stewart will always have an army of people at... Uh, at the ready whenever you mention even a whisper of her name on Twitter in any context. So <laughs> they'll be like, it's time to go see personal shopper this weekend. And it's like, okay, there were times when I would legitimately be reduced to subtweeting when I would talk about Kristen Stewart on Twitter and they would still find me. I was like, this is a sophisticated operation, and I genuinely... They probably still have message boards where they're, like, posting your subtweet, be like, is this possibly a subtweet about her? Right, and and they'll, like, they'll scan it for any possible sense of, like, sarcasm or shade or whatever, and, like, it has to be totally clean. Uh, I'm still in absolute fear of the Kristen Stewart stands. Um, Anyway, so... I don't want to shade the, the the Twilight movies, but there was definitely a sense, especially at this point, that Pattinson really wants to break out into uh, an adult acting career. And right. this was... And yet it's still before he's like working with auteurs because right. it wouldn't be until 2012 when he worked with Cronenberg. Right, on Cosmopolis. Right. Um, and then uh, worked with him a couple of times. And right, then he's making movies with eventually, you know, James Gray and uh, Claire Denis and the Softies and, and all of this uh, stuff continuing on today. He's, he's, um, <laughs> he's an auteur boy. He really... Uh, he's kind of the male... Nicole Kidman in a way where it's just like I went through this incredibly tabloidy 
uh, tempest of a of a career point and my solution to breaking out of that is just to work with nonstop auteurs all the time and good for him as far as i, I don't love i mean all of i them. agree and like this is why i'm not prone to like look negatively towards him doing the batman because i do think him playing Bruce Wayne probably is now going to get um, a million of these movies that are going to have otherwise struggled to get financing made like 100%. Um, I did not care for the Batman kind of at all. I wanted to talk to you about this because we haven't talked about it yet. I didn't like it, but I liked him in it, even though I think his like that character is just nothing. Like, there is nothing to that character. There's not a lot to that. I don't understand why he's doing the things that he does. There's all this talk about, like, he's a detective again. And I'm like, well, A, he's not a very good detective. And, like, so much of that movie is, like, the same exact, like, push-in shot of him, like, realizing the answer to a really dumb and basic riddle. And (laughs) um, I don't dislike Jeffrey Wright either. And, like, I... And yet, I don't think there's a whole lot of like charge to the endless amounts of scenes of the two of them just sort of like talking over this case i do feel like he is astoundingly hot in this movie (laughs) i knew you were gonna get there that's the that's my sort of like the the one thing best about the movie but like i i did not care for that film uh, kind of at all i feel like i could really be pushed in either direction if I watched again. I wish that I could watch this in a vacuum because I am so weary and over the like intentional darkness of It's crazy that they doubled down in that direction. It's crazy to me. And yet I do think there are some good like ideas there like if if like the whole brooding batman like movies that are i think significantly not as good as this one is didn't exist i think i could like this movie more but right now i'm just not see sure. i don't think this movie is a patch on the nolan movies i think the nolan movies were better like oh i'm not talking about the nolans i'm oh, talking okay. about the snyder oh gotcha gotcha and, like gotcha, there gotcha. is a certain level of the nolans that i a lot of it is the fandom around of course it, it like is. really of pushing it, it in a certain direction yes. because uh, Chris, uh, Christopher Nolan, at least in like the dark Knight, is trying to make a Michael Mann movie. Sure. I, I mean, I hate dark Knight rises, which is like, he says he's making a David lean movie. I think he's making 17 different movies that don't make any sense together. Um, Batman, but like, or the, sorry, the dark Knight rises is a much better movie to watch on television than it is in a theater because you can dip in and out of it. You can pick it up halfway through. You can, it's much better to watch in chunks, I think, than to watch mm-hmm. as a whole. And I, appre- I have appreciated it much more. Um, but speaking of Nolan, I think, I mean, you know, I am one of the foremost uh, pro tenant people uh, around. And right, I think where Pattinson plays uh, human linen. <laughs> He's marvelous in that movie. I genuinely think he's fantastic. I would have nominated him as supporting actor. I think he's great. Um, but so, yeah, he does these big, even the big budget movies that he does. You're right. There is, I think the, like, 
I think the Batman is getting more credit than it deserves for being like people are like it's a real it's a it's a it's a singular idea sort of ex- executed to its fullest and whatever. I'm like that's a little overblown. It's like he's falling back on broody Batman cliches and and David Fincher stylistics. So like the eh, Fincher whatever. the Fincher illusions are the thing that's driving me crazy that people are giving it credit for. I'm like all of the stuff that it relates back to Fincher movies is all surface like and like the surface yeah. like while is very uh, uh you know catching in right. Fincher movies like that's not why we still talk about Fincher movies. Like there's a lot going on beneath the surface that like I don't think this Batman yeah. approaches at all it's just these these really like kind of superficial venture illusions but the thing me. about modern pattinson is and i say modern to sort of differentiate from sort of the twilight years even when he's making a movie that i don't care for like you know i have no time for good time like i do not i have no time for the safety brothers and i specifically I, I don't like good time either. do not care for good time i guess this is the one that like pushes it the most for me, but I'm still, I guess, glad Pattinson made it, and I think it it did something interesting for his career. And I do still think he's really good in the movie. I mean, he's never bad. This is the thing. I'm trying to right. think of like a movie where I I think I mean he's bad in Water for Elephants, but like in in the last <laughs> you know decades since then, I, his two Netflix movies that he's doing weird accent stuff, which I've still never oh, seen either right. of those movies and probably never will, but I've seen the clips of like whatever the hell he's on. It's like, you know what? Good for him for going for it in this movie that otherwise wouldn't register. The Devil All the Time is kind of his Jupiter Ascending, like his Eddie Redmayne and Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> I want, you know, I, the Jupiter Ascending people, the, the, Wachowski people are going to come after me for comparing those two movies. And like, I'm not saying the devil all the time is good. I don't think Jupiter Ascending is either. But like, Pattinson's giving you something. He's really just all in on this weird accent. And, <laughs> and yeah, you're right. Nobody liked the king either, but everybody was like, ah, but Pattinson, if only there was more Pattinson. Like, he really is kind of Teflon at this point. He's he's gonna continue to evolve to be a very interesting actor. He's immensely watchable. Like as much as I love High Life and I think he's spectacular in it, I, we haven't even mentioned the one that I think is his best performance, which is the Lighthouse, the lighthouse right? Which he manages to like go kind of like all in on the conceptualism of that movie, while at the same time being so incredibly funny, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm I with you on The Lighthouse. I think The Lighthouse is uh, an incredibly fun performance. For a movie that is kind of that surface level, grimy and grody and whatever, like, it's a, it can be a very fun movie. Um, I also think of something like Lost City of Zed, where he, I don't think, utters an unintelligible uh, line of dialogue throughout <laughs> that entire movie. And yet... Um, you uh, you walk out really really incredibly um, charismatic. Did you ever see? I'm sort of going through his uh, his filmography, and did you ever see the uh, Anton Corbijn movie Life? No, I, that movie I don't. I think barely got released. Yes, I agree. And that was like a hugely predicted movie because it's like look at this picture of um 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 Dane DeHaan as James Dean. Uh, 
James Dean, and it's like, look how remarkable the similarity is, but like, yeah, it just never happened. What did? You, have you seen it? Is no. it bad? Is no, that why that's it why went I, away? I was asking you because I was I was curious about it. I have not seen it. I probably should seek it out at some point, even though yeah. it's surprising to me that is that is kind of pro Pattinson as our circles on um, in movie Twitter tend to be that nobody ever talks about it. So um, I don't think people know that the movie exists. That's very possible. Uh, what does he have coming up? Nothing after the Batman planned. He was supposed to be in the second Claire Denis movie that is supposed right. to be coming this year. I wouldn't be surprised if it's not until next year. Um, got replaced by Taron Edgerton and then got replaced by Joe Alwyn. Having read that book, <laughs> uh, Joe Alwyn's probably the most appropriate for that role, though I can't wait to see Pattinson work with Claire Denis again. Yeah. However, I if it's... if I mean, it's Claire Denis, so it could be her own thing. If it's anything like the book, I think Margaret Qualley's going to rip the fucking roof off that movie. Nice. Um, can't wait for it. Well, that's exciting. That's something to look forward to. All right. Um, what else did we... Oh, Richard Legravenez. I promised Richard Legravenez, yes. so we have to talk about him. Okay, so we talked about him only a few weeks ago in the guise of... How did we get to him? Um, I can't remember now. Because I remember us talking about living out loud. <laughs> and we were talking about uh, The Mirror Has Two Faces. But I genuinely... Oh, because he was one of the screenwriters that Ted Griffin um, was friends with. Ah. Uh, when, in, when we were talking about um, Rumor Has It. Okay. So, LaGravenez is like the screenwriter screenwriter. He's directed one, two, three, four, five features. And yet he's much, much, much more often employed as a screenwriter, either from the beginning or often brought in to, like, punch up stuff or, like, take a second pass at something. He's done a lot of very high-profile adaptations of things. He did the script for The Bridges of Madison County, which was a massively anticipated movie because the book was such a big bestseller. And mm-hmm. so, but was... also reviled at the same time. So it's like you could, I mean, obviously you can credit to Meryl Streep's performance, Clint Eastwood's direction, but like he definitely punched up that script, right? To be less crunchy. He's one of the two credited screenwriters on Alfonso Cuarón's A Little Princess, which was another adaptation of a book. Uh, he wrote uh, again one of two credited screenwriters on. Ted Demi's The Ref, which is always one of my like great yeah. underrated Christmas movies, The Ref. The big first thing for him was he wrote the screenplay for The Fisher King, which was directed by Terry Gilliam, ends up being like a multiple Oscar nominee. Mercedes Rule wins the supporting actress award for uh for that film. And that kind Richard of Richard LeGravenez's only Oscar nomination. Right. Too. And it kind of launches him in this excuse me, uh, launches this uh, screenwriting career. He uh, did the screenplay for that Diane Keaton movie that she directed called Unstrung Heroes that is also apparently based on... uh, Andy McDowell cinema. Right, speaking of Margaret Qualley. Uh, What else? It's all just like, it's a really interesting career. He does the Horse Whisperer adaptation. As you said, Living Out Loud, which is his directorial debut. Um is one of the screenwriters credited on Beloved, although you imagine that one had 
a very long sort of process. And I imagine Oprah was like intimately involved in the, the creation of that movie. Um, and also director uh, Jonathan Demi as well. He directs two Hillary Swank movies in the same year, 2007 uh, freedom writers and PS. I love you. I've seen neither freedom writers is the one that seems like dangerous minds redo and uh, less cool, dangerous minds. Right. And then, P.S. I Love You is, she was married to Gerard Butler. He, no, wait. is it... He dies and has written her letters or something. Or is it that Jeffrey Dean Morgan, no. What, all right. One of them one is of dead the and the other one is a new love. There was that era where Jeffrey Dean Morgan kept showing up in things and dying. Because he, like, uh, he was... <laughs> Watchmen. He's Mary Louise Parker's husband at the very first episode of Weeds. And his death sort of spurs her on to... Uh, have to take up selling weed. And then he also shows up on Grey's Anatomy and famously dies. Um, so, so he's also at PSL of you. I've never seen that movie. Um, he's got an uncredited screenplay, uh, uncredited screenplay work on conviction, which is another movie that we've covered on this podcast. I mentioned the last time that he wrote and directed my beloved, beautiful creatures with Alden Ehrenreich and, uh, Alice Englert. Uh, I, I've, Said too much about that movie already. I love it so much. <laughs> I can't wait to watch that movie whenever I watch it. And then he did the kind of maligned The Last Five Years movie, even though I liked that movie. I don't know where you stood on that. I thought it was fine. I mean, I love that musical. This is the thing is I did not come into that with any preconceived anything about that musical. I didn't really I knew that it was a thing that people really loved, but I had no experience with it. I think that movie happened right at the beginning of that musical becoming a little dated and ubiquitous. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because then shortly thereafter, it kind of got a resurgence of that musical. Right. It's kind of shocking that you haven't seen more of that musical being performed during the pandemic on like theater zoom. The Um, very, very best iteration of anything from that is the YouTube of Cynthia Revo singing I Can Do Better Than That at Marie's Crisis, which is one of the most, I like, I will watch that when I need to feel better. It just makes me feel so wonderful. And I, you know, just the- One of my top five favorite show tunes. imagining the serendipity of if you had been at Marie's Crisis then. Marie's Crisis, which is both a very fun time and also a just a pain in the ass to actually uh, endure <laughs> because it is it it's small, it is cramped everybody, like nobody budges everybody's crowding around the piano, it is impossible to get to the bar and it's just and if you are 
I mean, I don't know why you would be at Maurice Crisis if you're not inclined to musical theater. So, like, that's what, like, I don't mind that part. A lot of people are like, can you imagine being in a room of, like, uh, of theater kids? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Like, that's why you go to Maurice Crisis. <laughs> to me, it's mostly just like, I can't get a fucking drink and I can't move. And uh, there's a line to get in because it's there's such limited space. But anyway, if you endure all of that and get as your reward, Cynthia Erivo like singing the shit out of i can do better than that like that's just in the middle of the bar oh my god it's so wonderful like no fanfare just like belting it out so good and they whoever whoever put that online whoever recorded it with their phone and put it online is a national hero because yes. a we got her version of singing that song but like then there were that video was so good there were productions of her in that role she did that with that show with justin henry so the the video predated this is a thing i've never really known the video predated that production yes amazing amazing so good uh also danielle brooks that's right because she was doing the color purple at that point because danielle brooks is in that video um just sort of like standing uh, behind her or whatever um so yeah fantastic fantastic uh, video okay uh, a couple other Lagravenes things. He's one of several credited screenwriters on Angelina Jolie's Unbroken, along with the Coen brothers, who I genuinely don't know um, in what order uh, people got involved with that. He's also one of several credited screenwriters on the Robert De Niro movie The Comedian that I've never seen. Oh, boy. Uh, directed by Taylor Hackford, which I actually didn't know, uh, Mr. Uh, Helen Mirren. Did De Niro get a Golden Globe nomination for that? Was it him? Something happened. He I won would... a Hollywood Film Award. Okay. Oh, God. Sure. Not the Hollywood Film Awards. We haven't <laughs> talked about them in a while. I think those are now defunct. I don't think those exist anymore. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and then you... Wow. You've... Shocking. The Comedian is not an AARP movie for Grown Up Award. Not I, I agree. Uh, and then you, you invoked earlier in this episode uh, the specter of uh, Disenchanted, the Enchanted sequel. He is one of several credited screenwriters on that one so yeah i am kind of obsessed with the the sort of the journeyman screenwriter in hollywood um i mentioned when i was on uh the b-sides podcast my episode actually just went up uh, this week uh how i want somebody to embark on a long-term podcast where they cover all the films of lowell gans and babalu mandel the screenwriting <laughs> pair who've done like forget paris and uh and league of their own and just a whole bunch of these like '90s middle brow comedies that you've definitely seen on TV a billion times. Like that's their genre, and it is. I love the idea of because like podcasts and like intense coverage of auteurs is great, and we love that. And like there's so much to dig into, but like covering the careers of sub auteurist filmmakers is also, I think, deeply fascinating. It's one of the things I love that we get into on this podcast, actually, is we mm -hmm. get a lot of chances to sort of explore the films of sometimes auteurs, but sometimes people who are just, like, who work a lot and who don't have, like, that signature thing that they put into those their movies. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Know. Yeah. All right, what are the odds and ends that we haven't gotten to? Oh my god, the awards that this movie won. <laughs> the Comedian was not an AARP Movies for Grown Ups Award nominee, but Water for Elephants was. Christoph Waltz was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Go off AARP. You're crazy Who else for was this he one. nominated against that year? Uh, well, uh, Christopher Plummer wins. 
Sure, for being noted, uh, Danny Collins uh, stud yes. performer. <laughs> also, like the absolute ideal crossover point of the Oscars and the M for G's is Christopher Plummer in Beginners. Like that, <laughs> that could not have worked out better. Only other Oscar nominee is Max von Sydow for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Sure, right. Uh, surprise, not Oscar nominee Ben Kingsley for Hugo. That always is just so weird to me, and maybe I feel that more acutely because he's like the one thing that I actually love about that movie. Oh, interesting. Um, and then Jeremy Irons for Margin Call. If you would have told me that <laughs> Margin Call would have been nominated in this category, I would have said absolutely correct. But I wouldn't have guessed Jeremy Irons, though I suppose the only one who could have been nominated right. would have been Spacey. Right, and you're glad it worked out this way. Yeah, because everybody else in Margin Call is pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. A little Other... surprising they didn't nominate Demi Moore for Supporting Actress. It is, although she really doesn't have a ton to do in that movie. I'm very happy whenever she shows up, but... Um, Irons do is the we one remember gets... anything Jeremy Irons has to do in that movie? Well, but he gets a lot of those, like, a lot of his scenes in Margin Call are the ones where you look at it and just like, this is why America's fucked the way it is, is because people like him. He really gives these sort of, like, right. uh, very, uh, you know, capitalist pig monologue kind of stuff. And I get why that would sort of get a spotlight. One thing we haven't really talked about very much on this podcast at all, kind of surprisingly, is the People's Choice Awards. A, because I don't respect the People's Choice. I don't respect the people, so I don't respect their choice. Um, and I don't know. We just like it never really comes up in this podcast for too much. But I don't think people pay enough attention to like, I wouldn't be surprised if the People's Choice Awards are um, like not fully maintained on IMDb. <laughs> I think that's probably true. Um, I also have no idea at what point in the year they get pre- presented. I know they used to be on CBS. I imagine they still are. They just they ha- they are none of my business, and they exist <laughs> outside of my purview. Uh, Water for Elephants got two People's Choice Award nominations for a movie that again made only sixty million dollars, which again is not nothing. But in an era where eight billion things get you know are hundred million dollar movies. Um, kind of surprising that that would have ranked, but again, these things are voted for by uh, you know open voting situations, and the patents and army will show up. <laughs> like they will make sure that even a movie like Water for Elephants gets nominated for favorite book adaptation, where it loses to um, uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two, nominated up against. Uh, other Francis Lawrence has two nominations in this category actually at the People's Choice. I am number or no, sorry, it's not I am Legends. I'm number four. <laughs> Never mind. I am number four, a movie that I saw in a theater. DJ wow. Caruso's I am number four, starring. Of <laughs> Did course, you see that? Was that like one of those times that you're like, what is playing literally right now at this theater? It's very possible that that was the case. Um, it also might have been very possible that I was just like Timothy Oliphant's in a movie and I want to see it. So um, <laughs> uh, that is also possible. Uh, the Help was nominated for a favorite book adaptation. And then the fifth nominee was Soul Surfer, which was the true story about the uh, girl who got uh, lost her arm in a shark attack, which has 
one of the most like unintentionally hilarious posters, <laughs> posters. of all time, <laughs> which is just this. It's Anna Sophia Robb is the main star of this. She is on the poster. She's sort of clutching a surfboard in front of her. Her face is sort of half obscured by it. And the surfboard has a giant bite taken out of it. <laughs> and it is both like crass and also and also the the font is very like the OC font. It's very oh, like yes. you know, uh I don't know the name of this font, but it's very, It makes like, it gives the impression that Soul Surfer is giving you on a very special episode, right? Very much so. But yes. like it's just how do you not look at that knowing the story of Soul Surfer and not just have a laugh at that. It's just a big cartoony shark bite out of this surfboard. I don't know. It, uh, it feels like the inappropriate choice was made. I think that's right. Um, and then the... Uh, the uh, So Waterfall Elephants doesn't win that one. It does win favorite drama movie over The Help and Moneyball, which were both Oscar-nominated uh, for Best Picture. Limitless, which is the Bradley Cooper takes a drug that makes him super smart. That's an interesting <laughs> subgenre of the, especially like the, the 21st century is people becoming super smart artificially. Cause it's this, it's uh Lucy, the ScarJo movie. Uh huh. Um, Oh, what's the Wally Fister movie that nobody liked? Um, uh, super, not super intelligence. Um, but it's something like that. Transcendence. Right? Transcendence. Yes. Um, it is a movie about super intelligence. Um, so anyway, uh, that Bradley Cooper movie. And then The Adjustment Bureau, which is a movie I kind of liked. And it got paid, like, actual dust. And, and like, nobody it, saw it, it. Wasn't it on, like, Emily Blunt's IMDb? <clears throat> it's very possible. Um, I think she's good in it. I think she and Damon are both good in it. I think it's, it is, again, speaking of Danny Collins last week, it is a fedora movie to beat all fedora movies it is like the fedoras in that are kind of a plot point almost um <laughs> i enjoyed the adjustment period did you ever see that movie Mm-mm. it's kind of if you ever catch it on cable i would say don't go out of your way maybe to watch it but like if you see it on you know uh i don't know if you catch it somewhere and you have some spare time uh watch it but anyway water for elephants bests them all once again because the Arpats fans are scary and have a lot of time on their hands. So uh, what else? What else? There was a, also a Teen Choice Award that this movie won, which is, again, Arpats fans voted Robert Pattinson as choice movie actor in a drama. Let me look this up really quick. All right. So was he nominated again, against himself? He wasn't, actually. I imagine Twilight was nominated in, like, action or sci-fi or some other genre that wasn't straight-up drama. Um, Yes, he was nominated in Choice Movie Actor Sci-Fi Fantasy, where he lost to Taylor Lautner. The absolute gaggery of that. Uh, I'm sure the Twihards were in... Uh, open revolt against each other. I don't know. Almost uh, shocking that somebody didn't Adrian Brody that win. Also, choice movie Lip Lock, uh, Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson in Twilight Eclipse were nominated along with Kristen Stewart and Taylor Lautner in Twilight Eclipse. They, I imagine, must have split the vote and then they lose out to Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson in oh, Harry, no. Harry Potter Deathly Hallows Part 1. So... Mm-hmm. 
I imagine I imagine Twyworld was in uh, was in quite a state. Anyway, Pattinson did win Choice Vampire that year. Oh wow! All right, nominees for Choice Vampire. Only two from Twilight Eclipse. Four then from the Vampire Diaries. They they cross cross or no sorry three from the Vampire Diaries and then Alexander Skarsgård from True Blood. So TV and movies crossed the streams because the teens don't differentiate between the two. Um, Pattinson and Nikki Reed were the two vampires nominated from Twilight Eclipse. Good for Nikki Reed, honestly. Yeah. Anyway, Pattinson- this was the one thing I wanted to bring up because thank you for mentioning Jacob. The <laughs> Oh, right. Stupid, like, interview questions and, like, grabs of uh, Robert Pattinson is playing someone called Jacob. It's like, okay. Listen, I I understand the need to pay a bill and to make (laughs) some money. And if this is how you get SEO to show up to an article about the Water for Elephants by frontlining the idea that, uh, that, Robert Pattinson is Jacob, Jacob. like just like throw the name Jacob in there along with Pattinson's name. And you've got probably you've tripled your your Google hit count. uh, He should have trolled them specifically and only played Jacobs from here on out. All right. So Teen Choice Awards, not choice movie actor drama nominees. Pattinson wins. Bradley Cooper for the aforementioned Limitless is uh, nominated along with Oscar nominee Jesse Eisenberg for The Social Network. Also nominated, Shia LaBeouf for Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. Sure. A movie that, like... No teen saw. It's really surprising that that movie ever happened. Like, it's still, like, it It just kind of uh, amazes me that it happened, that it had the people in it that it did. It's just, you know... I believe... Didn't Michael Douglas get a Golden Globe nomination for that? I'm pretty Sporting sure. actor. Yeah. And then the fifth nominee is... Oh, God. my fa- One of my favorite himbos, actually. Um... Uh, Cam Gigande, Burlesque's own Cam Gigande, and The Roommate, which was, I'm pretty sure, like, one of those, again... Isn't that a latent Meester horror movie? If a movie could have been released in the early morning hours on January 1st, it's that much of a January <laughs> movie. Yes, it is Leighton Meester and Minka Kelly... Uh, Minka Kelly, who was in uh, Friday Night Lights at the time, and Leighton Meester from Gossip Girl, who both look decently similar in real life and are made to look like even more similar in this one and they are college is it roommates. like a single white female situation yes essentially they're college roommates and one of whom one becomes obsessed with the other and i can't remember i think meester's the jennifer jason lee of that pair is the is the kind of uh obsessed one but anyway uh also saw that one i'm pretty sure in a theater in like i said the earliest of january's um See, that's a movie that should be nominated for Teen Choice Awards. Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps. Like, this is why I sometimes love coming across the Teen Choice Awards when we do stuff like this. Because it's like, what are you talking about? It's like, no teen saw that. It's truly just about the star. I would bet my lunch that Pattinson was nominated for Secret 9-11 movie. Probably. That, like, not even no teen saw. No one saw that movie. Wait, now I want to look up and see how many Teen Choice Awards Pattinson has been nominated for in his career. I bet you it's like something like a million. 30. Like, hold on. Uh, teen. All right. Teen Choice Awards. Total number of nominations. I'm going to tally them up. You you talk a little for a second and I'm going to tally them up and then I'm going to have you try and guess the number. I also want you to tell me not only what the end tally is. I want to know 
which of the Twilights he was most nominated for, because they're going to throw in as many, like, categories as possible, like choice vampire, choice dramatic actor, whatever. Yeah, give me a second. Tally it's going to be it's going to be interesting. I do want to see if he was nominated for High Life, a movie that is at least 15% about semen. Um, <laughs> yes. I feel like the Twihards have been like surprisingly quiet about the Batman. Or maybe they'll just be louder at the end of the year. They'll be louder than the fanboys about, you know, s- getting him a best actor nomination. I saw some people, I think it was Joanna Robinson, who retweeted into her timeline something where it was like, the Twihards are being very resistant to letting the Batman people co-opt Robert Pattinson, and essentially (laughs) be like, you're not about to co-opt this guy who you all made fun of for years for being a broody, sparkly vampire boy. Frankly, good for them. Good for them for standing this ground. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Is like, good for you. This is your guy. Claim your victory. Do not let these, you know, incel jerks and, you know, whatever. Not all Batman fans are incel jerks, but there's too many of them that are. And don't let them uh, co-opt your guy. I'm into that. All right. I mean, the Batman is kind of about how his fans are incel jerks. (laughs) Like... I mean, it's not not about that. Although, again, I don't think that movie uh, does does as well by that as they think. All right, the, your your issue with uh, which Twilight movie is the most represented is there's like a lot of them that have like three and four apiece. So there's okay. no like runaway winner. But anyway, how many total nominations throughout his entire career do you think Pattinson's gotten by the Teen Choice Awards? Oh my God. Um... I'm going to say it's 30 or more. It's actually only 20. I think we're overestimating at Damn. this point. Um, but for a, a movie saga that was, what, five movies? And only a couple, only a small handful of nominations are from not Twilight stuff. His non-Twilight nominations are, well, in 2009, he's nominated for Choice Hottie. That is not, like, connected to any specific movie, but, like, that's the only movie he was in that year. So there was that. He's nominated. You are correct. He won Choice Movie Actor Drama in 2010 for Remember Me. So you are 100% correct about that. He won Choice Movie Actor Drama the very next year for Water for Elephants. Uh, another Choice Male Hottie nomination in 2012. I will bet money that he lost to, to Lautner. And... So that's it. Those are his only non-Twilight nominations. Otherwise, it's, you know, choice movie Lip Lock, choice movie Rumble, um, choice bunch of choice movie actor, sci-fi fantasy, uh, choice male hottie, as I mentioned, choice movie actor romance, which is how they, uh, they let Breaking Dawn compete in both sci-fi fantasy and romance for Breaking Dawn Part 2. So they really yeah, just like, they wilded it out for that. So, yeah, 20 total nominations, 11 total wins. Just the absolute Meryl Streep of the Teen Choice Awards. (laughs) Good for him. Being in the romance categories and the sci-fi fantasy categories are like being in lead and then supporting. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Um, In terms of other, like, odds and ends for this, the only other note that I have here... 
uh, that is somewhat unwell, which is that uh, this was the original Big Cat Rescue movie that uh, uh, Carol Baskin <laughs> clearly took uh, her inspiration from. From the end of this movie, they let all of the big cats free. And I will say, um, you know, I guess circus attendees innocent, and yet they were the ones who kind of got rampaged by these uh, lions and tigers running free. Uh, anyway, probably took a lot of cleanup. Any other final thoughts from you on water for elephants? Justice for Flora Plum. Yes, once again, justice for Flora Plum. We love them. We bring it up uh, all the time. Uh, justice for Flora Plum. Do you know who I am? I thought this was America. And uh, uh, I don't know. Remember me as a secret 9-11 movie. That's basically our <laughs> thoughts on water we we've really hit what's strange about water for elephants is that we've kind of hit like all of the benchmarks for our podcast yeah movies for grown-ups yep remember me as a 9-11 movie yeah flora plum yeah rendition yeah it really it it really does uh beautiful creatures yes yes it, it 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 It's all coming together. It's all happening. All right, Chris, let's do the IMDb game. We have been doing this for almost two hours. This is an unexpectedly (laughs) very long episode for, I did not think we would go this long on Water for Elephants, but good for us. All right, why don't you explain to the listeners what the IMDb game is? All right, every episode we end with the IMDb game where we challenge each other to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they uh, an actor or actress is most known for. Uh, if any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. We just open the cages and we let the lions run free. We do. We do. All right. Uh, thank you, Chris. Would you like to give or guess first? Um, how about I guess first? All right. So I went into the Francis Lawrence filmography and from uh, the great movie Constantine, uh, once again, uh, if you have not seen it, highest recommendation, Keanu rules, Rachel Weisz rules, Tilda is uh, amazing. All right. Uh, also in that movie, though, is one Mr. Jaimon Onsu oh. as, uh, as Sigourney Weaver expertly pronounced it when she read the oscar nominations that one year um and we have never done him for imdb games so why don't you do i think both of his oscar nominations are in there i definitely think blood diamond is there correct blood diamond bling bang itself um amistad amistad two for two he is the lead in that and what kind of, I would have liked to in? have seen how close he came to a Best Actor nomination for Amistad. He did get a Globe nomination, I'm pretty sure. I would guess that he is somewhat close. Yeah. Um, that was also the year that Leo did not get nominated for Titanic. Correct. But I would bet that Jaimin Ansu was closer than Leo. Interesting. Open the vaults, Academy. Prove us wrong. <laughs> Alright. Okay, um... What Marvel movie is he in? It's it's Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy. Chris File, you are three for three. Ooh. Three for three, no misses. Pressure's on. Can you get the fourth? I'm trying to think. Well, I mean, the, the it could be his other Oscar nomination. I 
I don't know if people still talk about it in America or like, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. The other thing, I mean, again, another movie that people don't really deal with, The Tempest. I know he's in that because he's on the poster. Which makes me think that it could be The Tempest. I'm just going to say in America. Here's the thing about this, Chris, is your uh, irksome tendency to underrate in America is almost proved your downfall on this. But you ended up on the right side of history, and you guessed in America, and now you have a perfect score of 4 for 4. Yeah! Congratulations. Congratulations, Chris. Very happy. You know, I, t- I was doubting in America, but I do feel like, you know, there's probably a lot of production stills that he's tagged to, obviously awards and such. Yeah. Also, it's a great movie. All right. What do you have for me? All right. For you, obviously, I could not do anything but go into Secret 9-11 movie Remember Me, starring (laughs) Robert Pattinson. Uh, Who plays his father in Secret 9-11 movie Remember Me? Uh, None other than Pierce Brosnan. By the way, this is not the first time you have terrorized me with Remember Me in uh, IMDb game. You made me do Emily DeRaven one time, and I still... I still am angry at you for that. Wasn't her known for, like, it didn't have Lost? Yeah, it was, yes. It was Emily DeRaven had known for that didn't include Lost. You monster. You absolutely. That's probably the reason I chose it, just to be like, this is wild. I can't not do this. All right. Okay. Pierce Brosnan. Well, obviously, the question here is how many bombs? But I'm going to put a pin in that. I don't think you would have given this to me if it was more than two bonds. But that's me trying to psychoanalyze you. So very first, what I'm going to say is I'm almost certain that the Thomas Crown Affair is on here. Thomas Crown Affair, correct. Okay. All right. My next non-bond question is does the culture value his part of Mamma Mia more than it does Mrs. Doubtfire. Now, Mrs. Doubtfire is the older movie by quite a bit, but they're, they're, every year there's this thing of like most shown-on-cable movies of the year, and Mrs. Doubtfire is always near or at the top of that list. So... Mamma Mia definitely is too, though. Yes... I don't know what this means that you are pushing me in one direction or another here, though. I'm now trying to, to keep you in the middle. <laughs> well, I don't like that. Um, all right. No, I'm, I'm just being petulant. I am going to guess Goldeneye. Incorrect. Damn it! All right. <sighs> You'll never know how I watched you from the shadows as a child. So one... Because mo- you're not on an own for. One Bond movie down, three to go. His I best feel like damn if gold, it's... His Best Bond, not I, Yeah, I feel like if it's if it's any of the other ones, it would probably be Die Another Day because it's the most recent and it's the one with Madonna. Um, but I'm gonna again hesitate. I'm gonna guess Mrs. Doubtfire. Incorrect. Damn it! All right. All right. So years. your years are 1999, 2008, and 1997. 2008 is Mamma Mia. Correct. 1999 and what? 97. Well, 99 is World Is Not Enough. Correct. Is 97 Tomorrow Never Dies? It is. 
What a weird thing that it's the two middle bombs. Exactly. That's why I had to choose it. Because yeah. Goldeneye rules. Why is it not Goldeneye? I don't Though know. Though I, I think the other, or at least World is Not Enough, I think actually made more money. Yeah. And it's terrible. Except for the song, which is one of the best Bond songs, sure, if not sure, the sure, best sure. Bond song. As I am contractually obligated <laughs> to say every single time, World is Not Enough, A-tier Bond song. All right. Um, that is a weird, that's a weird known for. I should have, I should have, why were you pushing me to Mamma Mia? You made me, you, you, you made me, you broke my brain doing that. In my mind, I was pushing you towards the, towards like, I didn't think that was going to help you get Mamma Mia. You were pushing me towards the right answer and I, and I questioned that. I was like, I thought it was where your mind was going. I was actually trying to help you a little bit. It was pushing you towards Mrs. Doubtfire. And I was just helping just a little bit. I was like, why would he be doing this? I don't trust it. I guess I should have trusted you. I guess that's my lesson. Your lesson is uh, give uh, in America a break, and mine is uh, trust Chris and uh, okay. his good. Uh, just looking at Pierce Brosnan's uh, recent uh, filmography. Yes. Gotta say, a lot of crap. <laughs> what are we seeing? What are, uh, throw, throw it out there. Uh, well uh probable uh we'll see if i'm wrong the day after the ceremony probable uh oscars fan favorite cinderella oh god he's in that is he her father he's king rowan oh so he's prince charming's father yes something i guess her father in that story dies pretty early although in the in the lily james version i feel like he was a presence for at least a little bit at the beginning of that movie. Quite possibly. I won't be watching the Camilla Caballo uh, Cinderella, even if it does win Oscar fan favorite. I'm sorry. I can't do I'm it. so glad that it's not a real category and you don't have to watch it for the... I mean, oh, there's for... not even, like, nominees. They've, they've put out the, like, ten movies that were supposedly winning it. Oh, I hate that you just lead. brought that up now because now I'm questioning whether I should include those, but I don't want to. So no, don't to. do it. It's not a real category. No, I, it's I, not. I relinquish you. I absolve you. <laughs> Thank you. I bestow grace upon you. All right. All right. We got to let our listeners go. We've had them hostage now under our big top for two hours. Uh, uh, our listeners are saying, hey, clown. <laughs> Jester, you have done it again. <laughs> Constantly raising the circus tent for us all. Oh, I'm so ashamed of you. All right. All right. That is our episode. Uh, we're very sorry. If you have, if you want more of this at Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. We have some great stuff coming up for you. So you definitely yeah. want to follow our Twitter account. We are going to be, uh, it's going to be a spring for the ages. So uh, get on, get in on the, on, well, while you can. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Letterboxd and Twitter at Chris V file. That's F E I L. All right. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R E I D. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed spelled the same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So shout out some commands in Polish. We never mentioned that. that is, oh, wow. Uh, anyway, shout out some commands in Polish and have your trusty elephant type out some nice words 
questions for us, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be yeah. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Everyone's a